Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And may God bless the understanding of that verse and that scene to our, 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 our benefit, our edification on this night. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, as we go through this text, as we try to visualize something that we know we can't visualize, as we try to get our heads around, we know we can't do that, but I, what I ask, Lord, is that you would lift us up off of the ground, lift us out of the sewer in which we live, and the trivial, mundane, worthless, temporary things we give our lives to, and, and, and let us address you. Let us see you in your power, in your glory. And therefore, Lord, as, as we look at ourselves and, and we look at the wretched state that we're in and we try to compare the two and answer the question that's before us tonight, I pray that you'll give me clarity as I try to bring this out and that hearts will be blessed. Those who don't know you, that you would work in their hearts so that they might, those who do know you, that you would bless them and thrill them to the salvation that you have afforded us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been blessed um, in the church over the, the millennia, actually, to have had truly brilliant men who will, will grapple with the difficult things of the faith, the difficult things of, of, of the revelation of God, and make them clear for us. Now, now you can go all the way back. I, I mean, look in the Old Testament. You have men like Moses and David, Abraham, Isaiah, Elijah, brilliant men who told us what the Word of God was. Then when we move to the New Testament, we're studying Luke and Acts on Wednesday night. Well, Luke was not only an accomplished physician, he was a great historian and also wrote the gospel in the book of Acts. And of course, Paul, the great intellect of the New Testament. But it didn't stop there. As we began to progress through the church age, God kept raising up men who were brilliant and capable of, of discerning what the Scripture meant. People like um, Athanasius or St. Augustine of ancient times coming to the Reformation of Luther and Calvin and others all the way up to the time of the Puritans and Jonathan Edwards and so many others with so many magnificent concepts of Scripture and then into modern times. Men like John Gerstner of R.C. Sproul, Sincare Ferguson. All of these men have given us insight into the Word of God. Well, one such brilliant man lived right at the turn of the first millennia. His name was Anselm, and he was the archbishop of Canterbury. And Dr. Sproul says he's one of the most brilliant minds to have ever blessed the church. And you know the reason I think God brings these brilliant minds along is just so that the, that the unbelievers and the naysayers can't look at Christianity and say, oh, it's just a superstitious religion for a bunch of simpletons. Well, try telling that to John Gerstner. Yeah, I'd like to see how you walked away. Of course, he's dead. But I mean, I'd like to see how you would have walked away from that encounter. 
because these are brilliant men and they are brilliant in what they've done. Well, back to Anselm. Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury, oh, I'm going to say from about uh, 1083 through 19, I mean through uh, 1103, something like that, 1109. And he wrote several books, but his crowning achievement was a systematic theology that he called Cur Deus Homo. Now, that it is a lot of, of, of interesting things in that book, but I'm just, I'm not going to go, we're not going to go into the systematic theology. I just really want to talk about the title as much as anything else and what it means and what he established when he wrote that systematic theology. Cur Deus Homo simply asks the question, that's Latin, it simply asks the question, why God man? And basically with that, you know, put it in better English is why the God-man? To expand it is why on earth was it necessary that God would leave his, his heaven and come to earth in order to save the likes of us? Why was salvation requiring God himself to come and arrange for it? Now that's the question that is before us this Evening, and actually, I think we are going to find the answer to it in this text that we've already read a couple of times. Uh, Luke, uh, the second chapter, and looking at the verses 8 through 14. But first of all, I want to put this in its perspective, and I, I really want to let Scripture do my talking for me tonight because some of the subjects that I need to bring out first so that you can understand what's going on on this holy night and why it is so unbelievable we have to first talk about the two words that Anselm said in that, in that question why God and man why would God become man now some of you think well big deal okay God can do whatever he wants to but that really is a very shallow understanding of who God is, I'm sorry. Because if you realize who God is and, and, and the nature of the true biblical God, it is the most amazing thing that he would do what he did in order to save us and some other things that he was doing, which we'll bring out later. And so therefore, I want to talk first about the nature of that God. In order to do that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning because that's where we see God in his creation. The Bible starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Now really all I needed to tell to say was that first verse. God, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Because that tells us, the reason I added the other two verses is so that you can see that God created all that there is by words, by thoughts, by the very power of his will. You know, we're not going to spend any time tonight trying to fit the omnipotent deity into our minuscule brains to explain away the kind of creation that the Bible tells us was there. God created everything, what's known as ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. That means there was nothing and he spoke and it was. And let me tell you something. If your God is so weak that he can't create the universe with the word, then he's not much of a God. And he's certainly not the biblical God. 
Because the biblical God is all-powerful. He created the universe that we can not even begin to see. Billions upon billions of stars and galaxies that spread way beyond our comprehension. And God made them all with a word, with a thought, with the power of his will. If he had form, he could hold the entire thing in his hands. He could hold the hottest star and blow on it and blow it out immediately. If indeed he was made that way, he is not. We need to remember who God is. God is the creator God, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the infinite God, the eternal God. Now that's the God who came down to see the shepherds on that night. I mean, this is where I want you to see. This is an amazing thing. Now, as part of that creation, God made humanity. He made Adam and Eve. He made man and woman. And he gave them a distinction, a, a uniqueness that apparently no one else in the universe has. Something that he did to our first parents that was just completely off the charts. This is what we read as we continue on in Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made us, made humanity in what is known as the Imago Dei, the image of God. Now, it's a little bit complex. I'm not going to explain exactly what the image is. But it's wrapped up in the fact that we have souls. We have the concept of morality. We have conscience. And we have the ability to reason and reach out and know that God exists. This is wrapped up in what it means to be made in the image of God. And when God gave us that image, he poured his effulgent glory upon us so that we reflected that glory. We were, and I'm talking about our first parents now, they were actually the reflection of the very glory of God. Now one would think that given such an extraordinary gift given such a distinction that they would have honored it, that they would have cherished it, that they would have held on to it no matter what came along. But of course, you know the story, and I'm not going to go into it. Our first parents sinned against God, and all of creation fell. And we started on this, this downward spiral, if you will, into abject sinfulness. Now, Along the way, the Imago Dei was lost. The glory that God gave us. Now, the, the image of God was not completely lost. Even the most egregious sinner still has the, a degree, the human dignity of being made in the image of God. But the glory of God, the closeness, the desire to be with Him, all of that was lost and replaced with a sinful heart. That is something that we need to dig into a little bit. Because if we are going to understand why God became man, we have to understand the state that humanity was in. And like I said, I would rather than me telling you all this, let me just read to you from Scripture because guess what? I I could be here for a month reading what Scripture has to say about us, about our fallenness. Just before God destroyed the world with a flood, this is what we read. 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Man, that is strong language. Now, of course, we're applying a human attribute to God, anthropomorphism, you know that word. But to apply that, but the thought that God was regretting that he made us because he looked down and saw that we were so sinful. Well, thousands of years later, the prophet Micah came and said this, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and great man utters the evil desires of his soul. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and man's enemies are the men of his own house. Just so you don't think that this is an Old Testament phenomenon, you've got, you have to go to Romans because those first four chapters of Romans, if, if, if you think you're a pretty good and decent person, just, just read Romans. Paul puts it this way, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Want me to go on, or is that enough? Do do, do you have the point? Now, some of you are sitting there saying, I didn't come to church on on Christmas Eve to hear this. When are we going to talk about the cute baby in in a manger and all the animals lowing and the star overhead? I mean, that's what I want to hear. Well, we're going to go to that. Just hang off. I, I had to make a, a, a background for what we're about to see when we look in the 8th verse of the 2nd chapter. It reads like this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, the shepherds are representative of something. And everything that I just read you about the fallenness, the wretchedness, the wickedness, the sinfulness of humanity, that is all represented by the shepherds. And you say, wait a minute, David was a shepherd and Jesus was the good shepherd. That's true. But in first century Palestine, just about as low as you could get on the social strata was to be a a shepherd. In other words, shepherds were very similar to middle-aged gypsies. When they came to town, you locked all your things up. You took your children, especially inside, because they were thieves and scallywags and brigands. And they were always looking for trouble. They were untrustworthy. They weren't even allowed to testify in court or to go into the temple. They are representative in this story of fallen humanity. My dear friends... Whether you like to hear it or not, you are the shepherds. The shepherds are you. And that just only makes this even more unbelievable.
that what is about to happen is going to happen to shepherds. Now, I'm not saying they were the lowest on the ladder. I mean, there were lepers and those possessed by demons, but not many, not many. Now, that's part of the puzzle. That's the man's side. Now, let's take a look at the God's side because that's even more of a problem. You see, not only was God, or is God, the creator God, not only is he omnipotent, omniscient, that just means all-powerful and all-knowing, infinite, eternal, all of those things, he's also holy. That is a word we've lost touch with in our culture. Holy, righteous, perfect, set apart. (laughs) Not, not, Not the concept of sin. In fact, the Bible tells us you can't even look upon iniquity. And so... Once again, I think I'll let the Scripture talk for me rather than me saying this. Remember what happened to Moses when he walked up to God and he, he saw this bush that was burning, but it didn't burn up, and it was God in the bush? Remember what happened when he began to approach it? God called to him out of the bush. He said, Moses, stop. Take the sandals off your feet because the ground upon which you walk is holy ground. Now, what was it that made it Holy. Why was the ground that Moses walked on holy? It was holy, not because of any intrinsic value of the ground itself. It was holy because God was there. His presence was there. The glory of the Lord was there. And that is what made it holy. And that which is holy cannot have relationship with that which is profane. That which is profane is instantly destroyed. We learned this throughout Scripture. We learned it a little bit later on. When the children of Israel were actually released from Egypt and taken to Mount Sinai. And God is going to give them the Ten Commandments. And this is what we read. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. He called Moses up on the mountain and said, Moses, it's okay, but I need you to get down there, and you tell those people not to even touch the side of the mountain. He put it this way, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Don't even touch the base of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Why? Because God is so holy that when he came down on top of that mountain, the entire mountain was so holy that if anyone were to touch it, they would instantly be destroyed. Isaiah saw this in a vision famous vision in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, a type of angel. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord. Hebrew has no superlative. You repeat it three times to say it's the holiest that it can possibly, possibly be. These are the angels of heaven. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. 
And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And again, just so you don't think that I'm reading you just from the Old Testament. When John has his amazing vision in Revelation and he sees the throne room of God, very similar to what Isaiah saw, we read this. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And there were four living creatures. I'm jumping around. There were four living creatures on all four sides of the throne of God. And they weren't there to protect God, my dear friend. They were there to protect everyone from God, from the holiness of God. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Once again, I could go on and on. I mean, these are just this smattering of what Scripture tells us about the holiness of God. Do you see the disparity? Do you see the difference? Do you see... That what happened on this night, this holy night, is so amazing because of what the shepherds represent and because of who God is. Because of His holiness, because of His power, because He is the God of the universe. And that makes what happened next simply stunning, if you can visualize it. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. Now, typically when we visualize that, and you you try to to see that scene, you see the shepherds are going like this because they're afraid. And then there's this big angel kind of floating in the air. His wings are there, but he's not flapping them at all. And and, and usually it's either female or a very effeminate-looking male, a big angel. And he's got little cherubim that somehow are all in the folds of his robe. And they're peeking out around the side of the angel to see what's going on. And the angel himself takes on a luminescence and... And, and sort of lights up the, the, the ground around him. Now, that's a great picture, but it's just wrong. <laughs> that's not what Luke says. The angel is completely secondary. Did you, did you hear what he said? And the glory of the Lord was shining all around them. The glory of God. The Hebrews call that the Shekinah. And what it meant was that God was there. The presence of God was there. And the light was not coming from the angel. The light, the angel was reflecting the light of God who was shining the light all around because his glory was there. You see this glory when Solomon dedicated the temple for the first time. This is what we read out of Second Chronicles. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. 
When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. On this scene that you're seeing, God's glory, God's presence comes down in front of a bunch of shepherds representing the fallen, wretched, sinful world that had turned its back on God. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would he come there? You can imagine if you were there. Okay? And you were seeing the glory of God shine all around on these lowly shepherds. You might say, well, Lord, you missed it by a little bit. You know, over here to the east is Bethlehem. And that's where the child was born. Okay, That's where Jesus is in the stable. And you should take that glory and shine it on that stable. Right? Well, that's... Not the way Jesus came. He didn't come with power and glory. He woke the second time he comes. He came with humility, born to poverty. And so the way Jesus is born is just right. Yes, that is God becoming man over there. But then you might say, well, Lord, if that's not where you should be, then at least you should be west over there because that's where Jerusalem is, only a few miles away. And that's where all of the high mucky mucks of religion are. That's where the high priests are. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the righteous people, you should be shining your glory on them, not on these lowly shepherds. But that is exactly what God intended to do. Why? The angel tells us. Look at the 10th verse. And the angel said to them, fear not. Oh, they were afraid. Let me tell you something. They weren't just afraid. They were terrified. Terrified out of their minds. And you know why? Not, not only did people have that reaction with angels, not only did they have it with the holiness of God, but every time God came down, it wasn't necessarily a good thing. It wasn't a good thing for Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't a good thing on the night of the Passover for the Egyptians or for Pharaoh's armies when they crossed the Red Sea. It wasn't a good thing for the worshipers of the golden calf. So many times when God came in this nature, it was for judgment and condemnation, but not tonight. The angel goes on to tell the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I bring you the good news. What's the good news? Cur Deus Homo. God has become man. And so we have to ask the question, and I think it's about time that we would answer it. Why would God become man? Well, that's what Anselm wrote in his book. And I'm going to throw a word out at you that you may not understand at first because it's out of context. It's an old word. God became man because that was the only way that God could have satisfaction. Now, today, we think of satisfaction when I'm sitting back in my easy chair and I'm just real satisfied with everything. But that's not the way it's being used. You see, in other times, if you insulted someone, right? If, if you had some kind of egregious insult, well, they'd whip out their 
their glove and they whack you on the face and they say, I demand satisfaction. Satisfaction is to set things right. Satisfaction is the, the payment. Satisfaction is to repay God in some way to satisfy his anger and wrath for the insult that we have given him every day of our life since we've been alive. We have been insulting. We have been transgressing. We have been sinning against God. You've sinned against him more times a day than you can shake a stick at. And God demands satisfaction. Why did God become man? Because no one could give God satisfaction but God. That's the glory of the gospel. No one could work off their good deeds. Man, if you think that you're going to work off your good deeds, you think that God is going to look at you and all the good things you've done and said you've done more good things than bad things and I'm going to let you into my kingdom, you just don't understand either the holiness of God or the egregiousness of your own sin because that's not going to happen. The only one, the satisfaction that, that was required was, occurred when God became man. That's why he became. There's no other way that you or I or anyone else is ever going to be saved or ever forgiven of our sins unless God becomes man. Because only God can pay for the sins. Otherwise, it's an eternity and we still wouldn't be paying off even a single sin against a perfect and a holy, eternal, infinite being like God. And so therefore, in His incredible mercy, in His deep love for those that would turn to His Son, He sent His Son and placed Him under His law, His own law, so that He would live a perfect life. And then he sent him to a cross as a, important words, substitutionary. That means it wasn't you. Sacrificial. That means that the wrath of God was taken upon him. Atonement, meaning paid for. And so in other words, the satisfaction that God demanded was paid for those who trust in Jesus Christ when he went to the cross as a substitutionary sacrificial atonement. Without that, no one's saved. So the angel tells the shepherds exactly the way this is going to play out. Look in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice the way he put that. For unto you is born this day. He didn't say for the rich and famous. He didn't say for all those righteous people over there in Jerusalem. He didn't say for the rich or the powerful or those who think that they're capable of waltzing into God's presence. He said, no, talking to shepherds, the representation of the fallen world living in the sewer. He says to them, for unto you this day is born in the city of David. And I don't have time to go into that, but an avalanche of covenantal theology just pours upon us. Because all of the covenants, whether it's Noah or Abraham or Moses or David, are all consummated in Christ. And they're all coming about on this holy night. That's another reason that he came. But unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Did you ever think about that? 
a Savior. Why on earth would God, the all-powerful, almighty God of the universe, send you a Savior if you can save yourself? It just doesn't make any sense. The reason God sent a Savior to this world is because you need saving, and so do I. We can't save ourselves. And so he sent his son as a Savior. Jesus said, I came to seek for and save the lost. John the Baptist looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The angel who talked to Joseph said his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus came as Savior. Oh, I pray. I pray that you recognize your need for a Savior. Because there's only one. And it has to be the Lord Jesus. Then he says he's the Christ. And I know that it's hard to make that connection, but the Christ is a Greek word which refers to a Hebrew word, Messiah, which simply means anointed one. And, And it is the one that the Old Testament has been talking about for centuries that God was going to send to set everything right, to be that sacrificial substitutionary atonement that I talked about earlier. In other words, this is the way that Isaiah put it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And see, that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's the reason it is so amazing. That's the reason that God had to become man. God had to become man because no one else can pay the penalty for sins against a holy God except God himself. So he sent his son Jesus to die for those who will put their trust in him and call him Savior, call him Messiah, call him Lord. Our words, curious. did you really think? Can you imagine this scenario? The angel comes down and gives this good news to the, to the shepherds and the glory of God is shining all around them. They're so afraid. And, and, and the angel says, you know, you've got a Savior and he's Christ the Lord. And the, and, and the shepherd said, well, well, you know something. Thank you very much for the Savior part. I accept that. And I accept what he's going to do on the cross. And that's grace. But don't talk to me about this Lord business. I'm the master of my own fate. The captain of my own ship, you know. I I like my life. I'm going to live my life the way that I want it. So don't ask me to give it up and to follow you. Well, the Scripture tells us that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Scripture tells us that there will come a day that every knee will bow. Here's the way that Paul puts it in the Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. Don't leave that out. That's hugely significant. So, cur Deus homo. Why did God become man? To save you to save me, save all who will truly trust in him, put their trust in him, accept him both as Savior and Lord, because only God could accomplish that. And as glorious and wonderful and good as that is, 
That's not even the most important reason that he came. I mean, we've answered part of it, Curdeus Homo, but we haven't answered it completely, and we haven't even answered the most important part. Look at the 13th verse. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're so self-centered. It's very difficult for us to see the universe from a different perspective. Yes, Jesus came to save you. If you're saved, if you're a believer, he came to save you. And that's a great and a marvelous thing. But that's not the only reason he came, folks. That's not even the main reason that he came. Listen to what the angels are saying. Glory to God in the highest. They're not saying, oh, glory to man because you're saved, because you're redeemed, because you're reconciled with God. Oh, that's important and that is great. But that's not what they said. Glory to God in the highest. Cur Deus homo. Why did God become man? For his glory. Because God is glorified. When a sinner like me is born again and pulled out of that sewer and cleaned off and made a new creation in Christ and taken before the Father and presented as the bride of Christ, clean and undefiled so that I can have relationship with God. That doesn't glorify me. I had nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with it. It glorifies God and God alone. Because God is the one who brings salvation. God is the one who sent His Son. God is the one who visited the shepherds on that night and shone His glory upon them. The glory that was lost at the fall restored to a bunch of shepherds. The Shekinah. The image of God. The glory, that refulgent glory, that reflective glory that now lives in us. Paul talks about it to the Corinthians and he says, we are the glory of God. We are the light of the world. We are the reflection of God's glory on earth. And that brings glory to God. Brothers and sisters, when you live this light, don't bring any glory to yourself because you don't deserve any. The hallmark of the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone goes the glory. So to wrap it up. Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? Why do we celebrate this night? Why was it important that God took on the attributes of a man and tabernacled amongst us? Number one. Because that's the only way that any of us would be saved is if God himself paid the price for our sins. But number two, that when we glorify God, when we gather together on Christmas Eve and we sing praises to him, when we are brought out of the sewer and put and exalted with Christ in our hearts and Christ beaming from us, that glorifies God. And that, brothers and sisters and friends, is the reason that God became man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your plan of redemption is beyond anything we can possibly comprehend. You have blessed us in so many ways. 
the thought that through Christ and because he is in us, we have been restored, the Imago Dei. We have restored the glory, or not we have restored it, you have, re, you have restored in us the glory that we lost at the fall. Never ever to achieve again this side of heaven, but you through Christ in us, we become the very reflection of your glory. Lord, may we let that light shine. How despicable it is that the church sometimes cannot even be told different from the world. Lord, let that not be here. Let us shine. Let us echo what we see happening to the shepherds when they experience the Shekinah, the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.